Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, as I thought, it didn't take long for the markets to surrender all of the post election gains. The Dow Jones today was down 602 points. So we've already lost it. It took one day on my podcast on Friday. I said that we would uh, surrender the remainder of the gains this week, and we did it. In the first day of the week, the Nasdaq actually had an even bigger decline down over 200 points, 206.03 to be exact, down 2.78%. Russell 2000 also down 1.98%, just over 30 points, just shy of 2%. S&P 500 also almost down 2%, 1.97%, 5479 The usual suspects, of course, having some of the big declines, Apple computer, you know, Apple came out with worse than expected earnings last week, down another 5.45% today, 194, now below 200. This is a new low for Apple, but a lot of the other computer stocks getting beat up today, NVIDIA down 7.7%. Broadcom down 6.5%. So the entire tech sector really getting beaten up. Of course, the Swiss National Bank is a big loser. They are one of the largest investors in U.S. technology stocks. Although I did read an article that said that they trimmed their 
uh, portfolios rather significantly before the October decline. So the Swiss National Bank not quite taking it on the chin as badly as might otherwise have been the case. But potentially the news that the Swiss Central Bank was paring back its portfolio could be part of the negative news that is currently weighing down the markets. But, you know, looking at stocks like GE, I have been talking about GE on this podcast for quite some time. Down again, another 7% today, closing below $8.799. The low price on the day was $7.72. You know, this is a perfect example of what happens when the buyback chickens come home to roost because General Electric was buying back a lot of stock when money was cheap. The company is loaded up with debt on a 45, 50 billion of debt. They also have 20 plus billion of underfunded pension liabilities, which I think are going to be even more underfunded when the market goes down. But when money was cheap, yes, easy to borrow money and buy back stock. The price of the stock was going up. Look at 2016 alone. I think that was the biggest year of buyback. So they, they've been buying back every year. But in 2016, GE bought back about $20 billion worth of stock. And the stock was, you know, around 30 bucks. They were paying for that stock. It's under eight. The stock is down 75%. That means if they bought $20 billion worth of stock, that stock now has a market value of just $5 billion, $15 billion of shareholder wealth up in smoke. Now the problem, of course, is they have all this debt. How are they going to pay it off? Well, maybe they're going to try to sell some assets. Maybe they'll sell some stock, right? They'll go into the market and sell stock in order to raise money to pay off debt, debt that is now becoming much more expensive to service now that interest rates are rising. And this is a problem that a lot of other companies are going to have. That's why I've been saying it's a canary in the coal mine, because a lot of companies have been buying back stock. And it was great. They can take on the debt when interest rates were low. But now interest rates go up, the stock market comes crashing down. And it's not just the stock market, it is earnings, right? Earnings are going to be affected twofold. One, rising interest rates means that you know, you have to pay the cost. Your interest expense goes up and that reduces your earnings. But when the economy slows into recession, which it will, everybody is still oblivious to that fact. But when the economy goes into recession, then revenues are going to go down. And one of the reasons that revenues go down is because your customers also have higher interest expenses. And so if they're spending more to pay interest to their bondholders, well, then they have less uh, to buy stuff. And so earnings comes down. In fact, I was listening to argument again on television about the fact that, well, if the economy doesn't grow as fast as people think, then the budget deficits are going to be much larger, which, of course, is a true statement. But then the discussion was, well, that's going to be bullish for the dollar because we're going to have larger deficits. And so that means the world is going to have to buy more treasuries and therefore they're going to need more dollars to buy more treasuries. And so bigger budget deficits means the dollar is going to get even stronger. And that is a bunch of nonsense because bigger budget deficits only means the dollar gets stronger if the world wants to buy those extra treasuries. Why should they? What if they balk? What if investors don't want to buy those treasuries because there's so many of them for sale, they don't want them? 
Well, then the Federal Reserve has to step up and reverse course. They have to go back to QE. They have to be the buyer of last resort. And so bigger deficits means more money printing. It means a weaker dollar, not a stronger dollar. But the fact that so many people could be so oblivious and believe that going deeper into debt is bullish for your currency, that fiscal irresponsibility and massive deficits leads to a stronger currency that belies all of recorded history. What causes currencies to strengthen over time is fiscal responsibility. It is the lack of deficits. It are, it's surpluses. Governments that don't create a lot of debt don't create a lot of money, and so they don't have a lot of inflation, and so their currencies can maintain their value. When you have profligate governments that are running up huge deficits, the currency normally collapses. Now, the idea that we're going to defy gravity because we have the reserve currency is just not true because the U.S. dollar has been falling uh, for decades as we've had the reserve currency. The problem is once we lose that reserve currency status, that decline is going to turn into a collapse. The dollar is just going to implode. And the bigger problem there is going to be when the Fed finally has to capitulate on rates. Because, you know, even though the stock market is falling, even though the real estate market is falling, investors are still buying dollars. The dollar index made a new high for the move today. It's now up at 97 and a half. That dropped the price of gold back down to just below 1200 I think 1199 ish or 1200 on the button is about where we closed today, down about 8 bucks. But the idea is that even though the stock market is going down and the real estate market is going down, that the economy is still going up. And because the economy is still strong, well, the Federal Reserve is going to keep on raising rates. Again, investors have not connected the obvious dots, which is something, again, that they did not do in 2007 and 2008, that falling stocks and falling real estate prices are a signal of a slowdown in the economy, of a recession. And in fact, the loss of wealth, the reverse wealth effect associated with a collapse in stock market and a collapse or basically the loss of home equity, that in and of itself uh, is something that would bring about a recession. But I don't think that the collapsing stock market and the collapsing real estate market is necessarily going to cause the recession. The recession was going to happen anyway. This is just going to exacerbate the severity of the recession as so much wealth goes up in smoke. Because remember, the entire recovery was built on the foundation of an asset bubble. That's it. It wasn't built on any kind of solid foundation. The whole thing is a gigantic bubble. And as the air comes out of the bubble, well, the economy goes into recession. I mean, there's there's no way around that. It's just amazing that people don't recognize that. They're still looking in the rearview mirror, right, at the high confidence levels and the low unemployment levels because bubbles always peak when confidence is high and unemployment is low. Uh, and so they're not uh, looking forward uh, and recognizing what's staring them in the face. But, you know, when the Fed does capitulate, that doesn't mean that it's over. That doesn't mean that they're going to save the economy or the markets. I mean, I don't think that they reflate these bubbles. I think when the Fed capitulates, they prick the dollar bubble. And that's the mother of all bubbles. And that's the key to the whole thing. Because once the Fed has to go back to zero, well, what are they doing? They're admitting that QE didn't work because they had to do it again, right, or admitting that ZERP didn't work because we're back at zero. And when they have to basically cut short the shrinking of their balance sheet, they have to abort that process and, and start up the presses again. Well, then it's an admission that it's not temporary, that the Fed's balance sheet is permanently inflated and that they're going to have to grow the balance sheet in perpetuity. And so you give up the ghost on 
of a successful policy that can be unwound. And so when they ramp it up again, no one's going to believe that it's ever going to go away. And no one's going to buy the nonsense that the policy worked. And so then the bottom drops out of the dollar and the bond market comes down with it. And then that's it, right? The Fed is out of the bubble blowing business. The money doesn't go to reflate the asset bubbles. It goes to consumer prices. We don't get higher financial assets. We get higher food prices, you know, higher energy prices. All the things that consumers need to buy are going to get more expensive. You know, oil prices continue to fall again today on the theory that the global economy is headed into recession. Although oil prices were higher earlier in the morning until Donald Trump tweeted out uh, that he basically threatened Saudi Arabia not to cut production, which is something that they have said they're considering doing. And it's something that I believe they're going to do uh, despite the president's threats. But when the president tweeted that out, the price of oil tanked. We actually closed now at $59 a barrel. So we're finally back below 60. But, you know, there are a lot of U.S. uh, shell producers that are hoping that OPEC cuts production. And they don't like the fact uh, that Donald Trump is beating them up and trying to convince them not to do it because they're losing money. I mean, a lot of these shale producers were losing money at $70 oil. I mean, at $60 oil, they're losing even more money. And so that's bad for this industry. And of course, it means layoffs coming in that sector if uh, oil prices don't stop falling. But I think Donald Trump is trying to keep the oil price down because he knows that the consumer is going to be in trouble. And he's hoping to throw them a lifeline in terms of cheap for gas prices, he was able to cut, uh, you know, cut income taxes, but that's not enough to offset the increasing cost of living. And so he's hoping uh, to mitigate it a little bit more with jawboning the price of oil down. But I think the biggest factor, again, that's keeping oil prices down is the dollar going up and the impact that has on the global economy. Enough people still haven't figured out that all these rate hikes that people think the Fed is going to deliver are probably not going to materialize because I don't believe at the slow pace that the Fed is actually hiking rates that they're going to be able to get all the 2019 rate hikes you know, accomplished before the recession. You know, if you look at the, the odds of recession on the you know, probability odds, right now I think they're placing the odds of a 2019 recession at about 2.5%. My personal feeling is that that's low. I mean, obviously, it's not a sure thing, but I would say it's at least 50-50 that the recession begins in 2019 officially. I mean, unofficially, it's probably a higher uh, percentage than that. But, you know, it takes a lot for the government numbers to actually acknowledge uh, the existence of a recession. But, of course, that means that even if you buy the 25% probability that we're going to have a recession, well, that means you have a probability that we have a socialist president in 2020 and that we have a socialist uh, Congress as well when the Democrats also take the Senate. I mean, if you thought the Democrats made progress in the midterms by taking the House, that was when consumer confidence was at a high and small business optimism was still you know, near record highs. Imagine what it's going to be like in a couple of years uh, when consumers are you know, in despair, when you have the return of the misery index, when you have inflation and unemployment much higher than they are today, and you have a surge in pessimism because you know, the whole bubble has imploded. Imagine Republicans trying to run for re-election in that climate. You know, Donald Trump tweeted out today that he blamed the stock market weakness this morning. And of course, the Dow was only off about 200 when the tweet came out and it closed the day down better than 600. But Trump tweeted out that uh, congressional Democrats harassing him 
uh, was causing trouble for the stock market. And so obviously that's going to be something that Trump is going to run on. You know, again, and things might be so bad, maybe he won't even run for re-election. We'll see. Uh, but obviously if he does and the stock market is deep in bear market territory, he's going to stick to that strip that, well, it's all because of the Democrats in Congress harassing the president. And I don't think the voters are going to buy that. Uh, you know, when we are in a bear market, when we are in a severe recession, given how great Trump claimed the economy was before the midterms and how he claimed credit for it, it doesn't really seem to make sense that just, you know, some congressional investigations or some harassment of him about his tax returns could really undo such a great economy if we actually had one. But of course, if the economy never really was great, if it was just a bubble, well, okay, well, then it's easier to believe uh, that it deflated. And is it possible that uh, the harassments could have, uh, you know, played a part? Maybe it was a pin. Well, who cares? It's not going to matter because once you acknowledge that the prosperity was false, that it was just a bubble, well, then it doesn't matter because all Trump was claiming credit for was inflating a bigger bubble. He didn't make America great again. He just made the bubble that he inherited bigger again. And when it pops, you know, he's going to be the fall guy. And so if you if you think that these tax cuts are so great, these corporate tax cuts, they're not going to be here. In fact, Trump is already signaling that he's willing to raise corporate taxes to, to get some kind of compromise bill with the Democrats on infrastructure. And I've already said that. I mean, Trump is going to try to compromise as the economy weakens because he doesn't want to be seen as standing in the way of the stimulus. And he doesn't want to give the Democrats a greater ability to blame him. So if the Democrat Congress comes up with some big government spending bill to revive the economy and Trump opposes it and so it never gets passed and then the economy is even weaker, well, then the Dems could say, oh, you see, Trump stood in the way of this plan that would have stimulated the economy. So the best thing for Trump is to let the Democrats have their way because if Trump signs on to their plan and it doesn't work, well, you know, he can't be blamed for the recession being deeper. Although, wait a minute, he will be blamed, but at least he won't be able to be blamed because he blocked what the Democrats tried to do. The Democrats will just say what we did was right. It just wasn't quick enough to compensate for all the terrible things that Trump did before we got into Congress. You know, those first two years when he slashed taxes on the rich, cut taxes on corporations, launched a trade war jacked up spending, you know, ran up the deficits, right? They'll blame all the problems on what Trump did when the Republicans controlled Congress. And the fact that their stimulus didn't work, well, that's just because the problems were so bad that we needed even bigger stimulus. And we're going to get the bigger stimulus we need after we get rid of Trump and we put a Democrat, Democratic Socialist in the White House. You know, one of the things, too, that Trump always wants to talk about is deregulation and how the Trump administration is cutting back on regulations. You know, but then you see this report comes out today where the FDA, right, which is part of the federal government, Trump's in charge there. The FDA is now proposing a ban on menthol cigarettes into the United States. Now, I'm not even sure that legally the FDA could do that. I mean, they may, in fact, need a congressional bill and the, the president may have to sign that to actually ban uh, menthol uh, cigarettes. 
But what would actually happen if the U.S. government did this? Because, of course, it would take a tremendous amount of regulation to police this, right? This is government regulation getting bigger. Now, I know, yes, smoking cigarettes is bad for you. Everybody knows that. Everybody who chooses to smoke cigarettes knows that they are jeopardizing their health. I mean, Americans do a lot of things that jeopardize their health. They eat a lot of food uh, that is not healthy, but they eat it anyway because they enjoy it. Well, there are people who enjoy smoking and they don't care that it's not good for their health because they they enjoy uh, smoking. And smoking menthol cigarettes is no worse for your health than smoking non-menthol cigarettes. I mean, it doesn't make cigarette smoking worse. It just makes it more enjoyable for some people who smoke. So at least, you know, uh, you know, they get more enjoyment as they're giving themselves cancer. But if the government actually says, okay, we're going to make it illegal to uh, smoke these uh, these cigarettes, well, that's not going to change anything. I mean, look at the stocks got killed today. British tobacco uh, was down over 8%. I think that was the hardest hit because about a quarter of their revenue uh, comes from uh, menthol cigarettes, uh, Lucky Strike, you know, here in the United States. I mean, all the cigarette uh, manufacturers got hit, but obviously those that have less uh, sales in the United States uh, didn't get hit as hard as brands that do have a presence here in the United States. But, you know, I think this is a huge overreaction. I mentioned I own a couple of tobacco stocks uh, myself. I think there's a lot of value there. You know, uh, I think they've already been beaten down dramatically. Of course, I didn't start buying them until they were beaten down based on this regulatory risk, which is a known headline risk that's in the market. I think there are a lot of short sellers that are out there in the stock. And when they get these headlines, they jump on them. But I mean, that stock right now, you know, at a 7% yield. And again, I'm not recommending that anyone go out and buy it. I don't you know, recommend stocks on this podcast, but I, I talk about stocks. And if I happen to own one, uh, I'm going to mention it just as a disclosure, but I'm not giving any investment specific advice on stocks. And I, I can't do that for regulatory reasons. But I just want to talk about the, the government's potential ban. Not that I even think that it's going to happen. Personally, I do not think the ban on menthol cigarettes is going to happen. And so I obviously think the decline in the stock prices is a huge overreaction to an event that isn't even going to take place. But let's you know assume for a minute that it did. What would the effect actually be on smoking in the United States and on sales of tobacco products? And I think it would be negligible or you know there wouldn't be any real effect of it at all. I mean, obviously, if people are smoking menthol cigarettes and the government says you can't smoke menthol cigarettes, they're not going to say, OK, I'm going to quit smoking. They'll just smoke cigarettes that, that don't have menthol. I mean, they're not going to you know, go to not smoking at all. So they just won't get as much enjoyment out of smoking as they were. But they're still going to smoke. Right. People were smoking before they had menthol and they're going to keep smoking. You know, I think one of the reasons that the government wants to target it is because younger smokers tend to smoke the menthol cigarettes. And so they think, well, maybe, you know, if we can just keep cigarettes out of uh, younger people, then that's a positive. I know they're more popular in the minority communities. A lot of African-American smokers smoke menthol. Uh, the uh, gay community, there's a lot more heavy smoking of menthol cigarettes. And, and so maybe they think that we have to protect these communities, you know, from, uh, from these type of cigarettes when all they're going to end up doing is smoking cigarettes that they maybe don't prefer as much. But in reality, that's not what's going to happen. Right? The government is not going to be able to keep people from smoking 
uh, menthol cigarettes just by making it illegal any more than it was able to keep people from smoking pot. I mean, they finally wised up and now they're making pot legal. So they want to make it legal to buy marijuana, but illegal to buy menthol cigarettes. I mean, probably this is one of the best things that can happen to the inner city gangs in America, because obviously they're getting worried about all this, you know, cannabis legalization because it's, you know, basically crowding out their turf. I mean, the gangs loved it when marijuana was illegal because they didn't have to compete with legitimate retailers. They had the market to themselves and they had, you know, huge profits associated with the illegality of marijuana. But, you know, now that you can buy marijuana legally, you don't need to buy it from a gang. Right. And so the gang profits go away. And so organized crime suffers when you make something that was illegal legal because you blow up their market. Well, this is great news because now, you know, if you have a lot of people in the inner cities, if a lot of minorities want menthol cigarettes and now the government says it's illegal, well, that opens up a huge black market. Right. All of a sudden now all you have the gangs now have a new business because now it's illegal for a grocery store or a liquor store or, you know, a smoke store, they can't legally sell menthol cigarettes. So now if you want to buy them, you have to buy them illegally from a criminal, from a gangster. And so that means that these, uh, you know, gangs are going to be able to make a lot of money now trafficking in illegal menthol cigarettes. And all of a sudden, hey, now we have a way to replace some of the revenues that we're losing because now we can't compete in the, the pot market because it's legal, but now we have this great opportunity with menthol cigarettes. And in fact, one of my first thoughts when I saw this or read these headlines was, oh my God, sales of menthol cigarettes over the next few years are going to go through the roof. Because first of all, even if they can get the ban through, it's going to take years to happen. And so what does that mean? That means that if you smoke menthol cigarettes now and you like them, and you know that in a couple of years, they're going to be illegal, what are you going to do? Well, you're just going to stock up on as many packs as you can. You're just going to load up your closets with your favorite brand so that you can have them, right? It's going to be like that Seinfeld episode when Elaine thought that, you know, the birth control, the sponge was going to be phased out or whatever. And so she wanted to, you know, she was stocking up on all these uh, sponges. And then, of course, before she had sex with anybody, she wanted to make sure they were sponge worthy because she didn't want to use one up, you know, knowing that they were they were going to be off the market. Well, people are going to stock up on menthol cigarettes. And in fact, even if you don't smoke, you might want to run out and buy menthol cigarettes because you might know somebody who smokes and then you can sell them a pack. Because obviously what's going to happen to packs of menthol cigarettes once they're illegal, the value is going to go way up, right? Because now you're going to have to import them illegally and you're going to have to sell them on the black market. So they're probably going to be a good investment. Even people that don't smoke these things can start buying uh, packs of cigarettes. You know, cigarettes were money. The GIs actually used cigarettes as money after the Second World War in Europe because you know they had intrinsic value because you could smoke it. Right. That's why I always say you don't have any intrinsic value in a Bitcoin because you can't do anything with it. Cigarettes are better money than Bitcoin because not only can you exchange them, but you can smoke them if you don't have anybody that wants them. And obviously, the, the menthol cigarettes will have even more value because there'll be an even more scarce supply. But of course, I don't even think the ban will work that well. I don't know that uh, individuals will really have to go on the streets and buy their menthol cigarettes 
on the black market. I mean, today with the internet, I mean, what's to stop somebody from just going online and buying these same brand of cigarettes that they used to buy at their local uh, liquor store? What stops them from just going online and buying these cigarettes from some business in Canada or Mexico or anywhere else in the world where they're legal? I mean, they're going to be legal in every country except the United States. I mean, do we really think we're going to keep these things out? I mean, is the government going to open up every piece of mail that comes through the U.S. post office or FedEx and you know, check it and make sure there's no cigarettes in there. I mean, are they really going to be able to do that? I mean, they couldn't even keep Cuban cigars out of the United States. How are they going to keep uh, menthol cigarettes? So I don't think companies like British Tobacco are actually going to lose these sales. I think people in America who want to buy menthol cigarettes are still going to buy. They're just going to pay extra. They're going to go online and buy them or they're going to buy them from criminals or whoever they're going to get them. So it it does mean that the price is going to go up because you're going to have some more middlemen between the consumer in America and the producer of the of the, of the cigarettes. But Americans are going to get them. Even, you know, sometimes I think you could just take a menthol filter. I mean, maybe people will sell aftermarket's menthol filters that people will just pop into their non-menthol cigarettes and, and, and get their menthol that way. I mean, all the government is going to do is create extra hurdles. Uh, between the consumer and the product that he wants. But the consumers are still going to get the products that they want. I mean, we know that going all the way back to prohibition. You know, prohibition didn't stop drinking. In fact, I will bet you that among young people, if the government is worried that too many young people are smoking menthol cigarettes, the minute they make it illegal, it's going to be that much cooler. I mean, every young person is going to want a menthol cigarette, even if they're not smoking them out, because that shows you how cool you are, because you got the things that the government doesn't want you to have, right? That Don't they get uh, what how kids are, how they want to you know, basically challenge the authority? They want to break the rules. I mean, that's what makes you cool, right? You're doing what the man is telling you not to do. And if the man is telling you don't smoke menthol cigarettes, well, what are you going to do to be cool? Well, hey, I got me a pack of menthols, and that means you're cool, right? So this whole thing is going to backfire on the government if it ever happens, which I don't expect. But I think the investors, again, have got this totally wrong if they're worried that cigarette smoking is going to collapse just because the government wants to ban uh, a particular type of cigarette uh, from uh, being legally uh, imported or smoked in the United States. Another thing I wanted to talk about, though, on this podcast is what's happening out in California with the wildfires. I mean, terrible, terrible fires, right? In Northern California and Southern California, the Santa Ana winds are blowing these fires and, you know, they're barely contained. And I think the damage already that I'm seeing, the estimates are $25 billion as a result of these fires. And I'm sure these are low. And the loss of life, I'm not sure, maybe about 25 people they already claim, but there's hundreds of people that are missing. So I feel, unfortunately, uh, the number of fatalities in these fires is going to be a lot higher. In fact, a lot of the people died in their cars just trying to escape the flames. And then they the roads got overwhelmed and they burned to death in their cars. So it really is... Uh, a tragedy, you know, just from a human perspective. But the, the point that I want to bring up by mentioning it on the podcast is just the economics of it, the cost of it. Because again, this is more uh, money that the government's going to have to spend. I mean, Trump could tweet about how it's all California's fault uh, because they're mismanaging their forests or whatever. But at the end of the day, uh, you're going to have disaster areas, federal disaster areas, I'm sure, declared in both northern and southern California. And lots of federal money is going to be required. I bet this could end up being 50 billion dollars worth of loss. I mean, that one town up in northern 
uh, California, Paradise, California, right, was turned into hell on earth. The entire town, I think like 6,500 houses, all of them gone. The whole town was burned to a crisp. Uh, and obviously, you know, other towns are suffering not nearly as great, but houses are burning down uh, in northern and southern California. A lot of celebrities, apparently, you know, they all live in the Malibu area. So some of the celebrities are seeing their houses, uh, uh, you know, burning down. But not only is it going to be the federal government, but again, the insurance companies that are going to have to foot the bill, the insurance companies are already hurting uh, because of all of the claims that are coming in uh, for other you know, natural disasters. And this is just another one. And so what do the insurance companies have to do when they have lots of claims? Well, they have to raise rates so they can get more money from future policyholders in order to pay those claims. And in fact, I know that happened to myself here in, in California, I mean, in, in Puerto Rico, because I had hurricane insurance for my own house. And I had uh, quite a bit of damage. And I finally was able to collect from my insurance company. It took about a year. I mean, I did most of the repairs myself and, you know, laid out the money and eventually got paid uh, after my, you know, from the insurance company. Of course, I had a deductible. And so I had to, you know, you know, absorb that myself. And then I was able to collect. But my premiums basically tripled for coverage going forward. And, and based on that, I just decided not to buy it anymore. So I'm just going to, you know, just cover myself uh, to the extent that we have a, another uh, hurricane. I'm just going to pay for it. I chose not to buy the insurance. There are a lot of people that may not be able to make that choice. They may have no choice but to pay the higher premiums. And then what are they going to do? You know, if you have to spend all that extra money uh, on on insurance, well, then you have less money to spend for other things. And of course, a lot of people, if they have to pay the high insurance, if they haven't already bought a house, they might not buy one. Uh, the cost of the insurance that's required, you know, when you get a mortgage, the bank requires you have to have insurance because they've loaned you the money to buy the house. I mean, if it burns down, they got to, you know, you, they, they have to know that it's going to be rebuilt. And so that just makes home ownership even more expensive. And of course, a lot of people, if their insurance rates go way up, maybe they just put the home on the market because they can't afford to pay the rates. You know, oh, I, I wanted to mention too, I'm talking about my own personal experience with insurance. I, I mentioned already my personal experience with the sun, sunscreen that I buy, right? The U.S. government, the FDA, makes it illegal for companies to sell sunscreen that has the particular ingredient. I forget what it's called. But what it does is it substantially reduces the risk of skin cancer, which is something that I'd like to do. I mean, I live out in an area with a lot of sun, so I get a lot of exposure to the sun. So I'd like to reduce the risk of skin cancer. And if there are sunscreens that can do that for me, well, I'd like to use them. And people all around the world have made this decision to use these sunscreens. And the only place you can't use them is in America because the FDA has not uh, you know, authorized them. And none of the uh, companies that manufacture the sunscreen wants to spend the enormous sums of money necessary to get FDA approval. So none of the products are approved by the FDA. And so you can't buy them. It's illegal. Nobody can sell them in the United States. But I just go online and buy them. I, you know, you buy them from uh, Australia. You could buy them from Canada. You could buy them from Israel. There's a lot of places that you could buy this sunscreen, and it's great stuff. I mean, it's unfortunate that Americans can't legally buy it. You know, we have the highest incidence of skin cancer in the world. So, you know, 
American more than anybody, we need these products, but the FDA is not allowing Americans to have these products. And so we just continue to have a higher incidence of skin cancer, but I'm still able to buy them because all I have to do is jump through a few hoops and I can go and buy them. Yes, I can't go and buy them, you know, at the drugstore where I, where most Americans buy their sunscreen or at the supermarket or wherever they get it. It's not on the counter, I just have to go through some hoops and probably pay a little bit of a higher price, but I can buy it. I can still have access to it, right? Even though it's illegal and I'm not going to jail. I mean, I don't think I'm, you know, they're going to come breaking, breaking, you know, down my doors because I'm using this uh, sunscreen. And so the same thing would likely happen if, you know, I was a smoker and I smoked menthol cigarettes and I just started buying some menthol cigarettes and having them shipped to my house, you know, in a package, you know, I'm still buying them. The manufacturer's still getting money. The only one that's losing out is the American retailer that used to be able to sell them to me and now lost the lost that business opportunity because of increased government regulation. So, you know, the Trump administration is saying, hey, we're cutting back on regulation. It sure doesn't look like it from the point of view of what the FDA is doing. The FDA seems to be ramping up government's interference in the economy. They're creating even more regulation. But, you know, getting back to uh, the topic of the, the hurricane. So, again, all of this is bad for the economy. Sure, the Keynesians will say, well, it's great because we get to rebuild all the houses that burned down. OK, well, what about the raw material costs? What about the labor? Right. I mean, construction costs were already rising in the United States. Now, if we have to rebuild all those houses that got burnt down, well, you know, they're they're going to rise even faster. Now, some people will say, well, it's good. See, we're creating construction jobs. No, we're not. We're going to create jobs building new homes to replace the ones that were destroyed instead of building brand new homes uh, where no homes existed. So we're not going to be any better off. We're going to be worse off. Now, you can argue that the homes we build, maybe they'll be better than the ones that burned down. But at what cost and where is the money going to come from if we already don't have savings? This is just more money that has to be borrowed. But interest rates are already rising. They're going to continue to rise. So this is, you know, the worst time for, you know, these natural disasters to hit, right? That's where that expression comes from. You know, we save something for a rainy day, right? Well, in America, you know, it's raining now. and We haven't saved anything. And it's not just raining, it's pouring and it's burning and, you know, it's blowing and we're getting all sorts of natural disasters and we have to go out and try to borrow the money because we hadn't saved it. And we already have a debt bubble. We already have interest rates going up. And again, the amazing thing to me is you can look at the stock market collapsing. You can look at individual stocks blowing up. And you can look at these charts and you can see, wait a minute. I mean, there's a long way to go. I mean, if these stocks are falling, if this is a bear market, we are early in this bear market. There's a lot of wealth that is going to evaporate if this is a bear market. And people want to be in denial and say, well, it's only a correction. I mean, maybe it's only a correction, but I think there is a higher probability that it's a bear market. And if it's only a correction, well, I mean, well, maybe the bear market's going to start a little bit later. It's not like we're not going to have one. And when you have an economy so dependent on assets, obviously, when those assets lose value, there goes that economy. But the real estate market should be a flashing sign to people that 
This is a huge problem. As I said, this is a bigger bubble than the one that popped in 2008. Not just the residential market is a bigger bubble, but the commercial market is a far bigger bubble. And that bubble never really deflated in 2008. That was really single-family homes. This is going to be a commercial bubble popping at the same time as we have a residential bubble popping. So this is going to be by far the worst recession that Americans have ever uh, lived through. I mean, it is going to be significantly worse than the Great Recession of 0809, which was truncated by the Federal Reserve, by the government. They were able to stimulate the economy to cause that recession as deep as it was, not to be nearly as deep as was necessary to clean house, to correct all the problems, to restore a balance to the economy. Instead, we basically... Uh, you know, crystallized those problems into the economy and exacerbated them. So instead of allowing everything to restructure, we preserved that structure and then we built it higher. So we just took this, this debt bubble that was built on this shaky foundation and made it even bigger. And so now it's still going to implode. But this time, as I said, it's too big, right? There is no way for the Federal Reserve to reflate this bubble. So let's see what happens, you know, with the stock market. Maybe we'll get a reversal Tuesday, tomorrow. Uh, that seems to be the pattern. Although if the market gaps up tomorrow, then it's probably an even better sell uh, than if it gaps down. And if it gaps down, depending on how much, we'll have to watch it to see if we can put in another type of short-term reversal so this bear market can continue to fall the slope of hope. But I still think that the potential for a more severe downturn or a crash continues to go up. You know, even though we went through the month of October without an official crash, that doesn't mean we can't have one in November. That doesn't mean we can't have one in December. Instead of having a Santa Claus rally, right, it could be the Grinch that stole Christmas. And of course, one of the worst things that might end up happening is if we get weak Christmas sales. We'll see if that happens. Obviously, everybody thinks the holidays are going to be a boom because people have so much money based on this booming economy and these tax cuts. Well, we'll see if consumers really have the ability to go deeper into debt uh, to put more presents under that tree or if they're you know, going to step back. And there's certainly uh, indication that that may be the case. But regardless uh, of this Christmas, I think that the retailers are going to have a bleak time in 2019 as this recession takes hold, as assets evaporate and home equity disappears. Uh, that's going to be increasingly bad for the retailers, which means it's going to be extra bad for their landlords. The people that own uh, the, the real estate that the retailers are renting because a lot of the rents, A, are tied to sales. But of course, if retailers aren't selling, then a lot of them uh, go bankrupt. They go out of business. You know, and if they go out of business, they're not paying rent. And if retailers are going out of business and the, and the stores are empty, the odds of finding another retailer to replace that, that store, that tenant, that is, are slim. Because if one retailer couldn't stay in business, why would another one want to take a chance on the exact same space where the prior tenant already failed? Chances are the new tenant would also fail. Mm -hmm.